0: well good evening thank you for coming out i'm sure we're going to be met with a blessing here this evening and and this morning i was uh, really enjoying the um, presentation Um, i think the thing that was really a take home for me this morning is uh uh, orion's focus on doing well at home and uh starting from that and i think that was very solid and uh, um, a blessing to me if we're not doing it here at home, uh, yeah, you can't expect to start by going elsewhere, so um, looking forward to this evening and sure that there'll be a blessing for all of us. So the order of the service here is uh, Aaron Stolzfus will have a devotional and immediately following that we'll have another song and we'll have an offering. Um, as soon as the song is over, uh, Orion Shirk will be um, giving the last of his two-part series here so uh, we'll do it in that order so I think without further comment well Aaron will you come forward and share the devotional
1: It's good to see each one of you here. Hopefully everybody was able to get a nice Sunday lunch and a nice, long, cozy Sunday nap. I know that I uh, was able to do that. I enjoyed some of my mom's famous haystack. And if you wonder how a common dish like haystack can be famous, just come to my mom's place some Sunday lunch and you'll find out. It's also good to be here. Orion, thank you for what you shared this morning. I look forward to hearing what you have to share as well. I was asked to share about my experience at Baldy Boys Camp and how that prepared me to serve in the kingdom of God. And before I get into that uh, too much more, I want to read with you all Psalms one, or Psalm 142. So if you could turn to Psalm 142, I want to read a Psalm of David. And I'm going to read it in the ESV. Psalm 142, starting at verse 1. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say you are my refuge. My portion is in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Does anybody know what was going on in David's life when he wrote that psalm? It might say in the caption of your, or the heading of your Bible. Yes, from what? Because there's a lot of emotion in that psalm, right? What was he hiding from? Yes, so he was on the run. We don't know exactly at what point of the chase this was, but it's pretty obvious that he was hiding in the cave from Saul, um, who was pursuing him, trying to kill him, actually. Um, So David was feeling a lot of things. It's fair to say that he was in a crisis. He was in trouble, obviously. He was discouraged. He was in danger for his life. He was lonely. Verse 6 says, "'Attend to my cry,' For I am brought very low. Pretty obvious that he was at one of his lowest points. So why am I reading this psalm um, at a missions conference? Um, I'm reading it because David does such a good job putting words to some of the emotions that a person can feel when they are at their lowest. And when we, or sorry, and it's when the boys at camp are at their lowest, when they choose to come to camp. Because typically, they're in a bit of a crisis as well. A little different than David, obviously. Um, But often, they are also in trouble. They're discouraged. They feel alone because bad behavior often puts you alone. They're often in a situation where parents have told them that they just can't live at home anymore because it doesn't work out. They're often in a situation where school or civil authorities have told them that it's either going to camp or going to some other facility, a detention facility, a juvenile facility, or something like that. And so they choose to come to camp. And then the unbelievable part happens. They are placed in a, and by the way, they choose, so this is a voluntary thing, but after they choose and they commit to camp, they can't reverse that decision. So when they get to camp, they are placed in a group of nine other mischievous, fun-loving young men that all have their own set of problems. And on top of that, there's two very inexperienced young men who do not have any formal psychology or therapy training, um, are the leaders of the group. How do you expect that to work? It doesn't really make any sense if you think about it. Um, But yet it does, and a lot of boys' lives and a lot of chiefs' lives are changed through that program. And I won't get into all of the how camp works tonight because I don't have time, but it works in part because of the structure of camp, but it also works in part because of the community of camp. So remember when I was talking about loneliness? Boys feel alone. Well, when they're placed in a group of nine other boys that also have issues and problems, and they're placed with chiefs who have their own set of difficulties and strengths and weaknesses Things start to come to light um, for these boys, but it's in a community, in a group of other boys, where they have support and um, and they have what they need to begin working on those issues. Um, by definition, community means a group of people living in the same place or having a particular characteristic in common. And camp is one of the places, or... Camp is one of the most community-oriented places that I've ever known and ever lived in, for sure, Um, because everybody lives very close together. Most of staff and all of the boys live on top of a mountain. There's really no place to go, and everyone's there for the same reason, to help young people solve problems. And so at camp, um, these boys suddenly have the community that they've not had Before that, Um, sometimes it's their own fault that they haven't. They've isolated themselves from their parents, they've isolated themselves from their classmates, and the other groups that they would have the opportunity to be a part of, they've kind of, uh, because of their behavior, they typically don't have those anymore. And so at camp, once again, they have the opportunity to be a part of a community or of a small group of people. And there, that community provides a reflection for boys to see how they look from other people's perspectives. That community provides an opportunity to see how their their actions affect other people, an opportunity for mistakes to be made without fear of being cast out, an opportunity for accountability and for support, and a place for problems to be solved. Now, I'm sure that you know that I am a huge fan of camp, and one of the reasons for that is because of this aspect of community that camp provides, um, both for the boys that are there and for myself as a counselor, or as we call it, a chief. That was one of the most, I mean, so I went to camp and I expected to help young men. It was, you know, this was an opportunity for me. I could go, I could live in the woods and I could help young people. What's more to be desired than that? But what I think back to now is the growth that that caused in my own life for those exact same reasons. I had a group of boys that, first of all, found my insecurities, that found my weaknesses, and just poked and prodded at them um, to where they had to be looked at. And and then there was the support of the rest of the community there with co-chiefs and with supervisors um, and family workers that helped work through those things. Um, So I think one of the strengths of camp is the community that's there. For instance, I had a boy named Rowan, and he just couldn't stop despising himself. He uh, He felt like he had nothing to contribute, and he would constantly say things that were negative about himself. And I think, in part, that's because there wasn't actually a lot to like about him. He was very negative. He uh, was not a particularly skilled individual. Um, And so the feedback that he'd received was that he was not very valuable and he just internalized that and uh, lived that way. Um, But when he joined the group at camp, my group was called the Mountaineers, um, these things started coming out pretty quickly and the group got kind of tired of it. They, they said, you're feeling sorry for yourself. You're not um, participating in our group spirit. Um, and so after some time of the group kind of providing that reflection for him, um, there were things that he realized that he was actually really good at and that he could contribute to the rest of the group and did. He was very good at math. He was very good at helping people. And he was very physically strong as well. And so he did a lot of work for us. Um, And so building his self-esteem was something that he could uh, receive from the community there at camp. There was another boy named Everett who when he came to camp, he could not control his anger. He was the sweetest boy you've ever met most of the time, 99% of the time. But when something would happen that was just a little too much, then something would flip and he would completely lose control of himself. Um, But... After a bit, that pretty ob- if you're living in a, in a community, a group of people that's willing to, to give you feedback, you understand that you're not going to have a lot of friends if you do that. And so the group worked with him as well to help him before those things happened that would set him off, to digest those things, to talk about them, talk about his emotions before they became too large for him to handle. And Everett, I'm still friends with him. He, uh, yeah, he just had his 15th birthday a little bit ago, and now is um, helping a very valuable part of his family. His mom and dad have a lot of other children that they foster and adopt, and now he helps in that, teaching his siblings to do the same. And then, on a personal note, um, Chief or uh, Camp helped me as well, both my boys and my chief co-chiefs and supervisors helped me to work through some of my own insecurities um, to see that I had something valuable to contribute and that I was a valuable person in the sight of God. So I'm talking a lot about community and I'm talking a lot about uh, you know, groups and, and what, is that? So what does that have to do with what I want to share tonight? Well, the question that I am trying to answer is, well, uh, see, what was the question earlier? Uh, Let me find it here. So how did my experience at Baldy Boys Camp prepare me to serve in the kingdom of God? And I believe that one of the ways that it did that was to teach me the incredible value of community. And because of that, I think that 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 aspect of community is one of the things that we most have as conservative Anabaptists have to contribute to the kingdom of God, because believe it or not, we as conservative Anabaptists care more about community than most other people. We strive to care for each other physically and spiritually, emotionally, even financially. And you might be thinking, well, we don't always do the best job, and you're right, we don't always. But we strive for that, and when we make mistakes, we move on and we keep trying. It is one of our values, and because of that, I believe it is one of our greatest opportunities In missions all around us there are people like David like the boys that are entering camp that are going through crises, crises that are going through discouragements loneliness Um, there are people at work and school at church whether you're in voluntary service or overseas missions and sometimes to find them all you need to look in all you need to do is look in the mirror I'm guessing at least that's true for myself and so we know these people, there are people around us that need community, and so, especially as conservative Anabaptists who are, I think, gifted in that, I think that's one of our opportunities to reach out in both on an individual level, one-on-one, take the strength that we have in our communities um, as, as kind of a foundation to reach out, um, and then also inviting people into our communities, into our, uh, our work communities, into our church communities, and so forth um so i leave that with you i think that community is a strength that we have and it is one of our greatest opportunities to reach out to the people around us and to the world around us with that said let's uh, bow our heads for prayer heavenly father thank you so much um, for the community the church that we get to be a part of and thank you for the smaller communities within that the work school communities families and Lord, I pray that you would help us to strengthen those ties and in those, in those communities and then help us to use those communities to reach people that are lonely, people that um, need to belong somewhere, and people that are searching for you. Be with us tonight as we uh, listen further. Help us to open our hearts to what Orion has to share, and I pray that you would uh, guide his words. Thank you for your many blessings to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Turn to 1014.
2: Thank you, Aaron, for talking about camp. One of the lines uh, from 1014 um, that aligns with what Aaron talked about is the words of verse 2 Abundantly we have received, and gratefully we will respond with true evangelical faith. Number 1014 we will lift the offering. For Orion as we sing this song one thousand fourteen
1: True Evangelical faith cannot less
2: Jordan and Aaron for your contribution this evening and I want to thank you for the offering I was not expecting that so thank you (laughs) Um, I stand before you this evening with some trembling because what I have to share is weighty we serve an almighty God And he is the only source of life. He is the only source of anything that is truly good. And when he created us, he created eternal beings. And when we, as eternal beings, cut ourselves off from him who is the only source. Of what is good and what is life. The only thing that waits is eternal death and torment. Truly, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So, my title this evening is Do You Believe That Hell Is Real? Do you believe that hell is real? However, before we address that subject, I would like to spend probably about half the time establishing what our God is like in the person of Jesus as described in the book of Revelation. So I want to, Firstly, question, what is the king like? What is our king like? Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 says this. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So he's a faithful, a faithful witness. A witness to what? John chapter 18 verse 37 says that he is a witness unto the truth. The truth about us and who we are. About God's word and his world. That verse tells us that he was the first to rise from the dead by his own power. He is the prince of kings, and he loves us, present tense, and cleanses us from sin. And I will be doing a fair amount of scripture reading here, so if you want to follow along, you can turn to Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 to 18 for the next part. He is glorious in appearance. He is glorious in appearance. What is our God like? Verse 12 of Revelation chapter 1. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they had burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen and have the keys of hell and of death. So in that passage, we see Jesus clothed in princely garb, clothed with glory and majesty. And in verse 14, his hair is white with radiant glory. And like his feet, um, down later in where is it uh, verse 15? It says his feet like brass, as if they had burned in a furnace. So I think John is struggling a little bit to describe what he's seeing. It's like the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus' feet and his his oh his eyes, his face—they're all shining with brilliance. His feet are white, just glowing. And John is tr- struggling to describe what he's seeing in the person of Jesus. And if you want a, a good psalm to read, it's one of my favorite psalms. I'm not going to look at it right now. But Psalm 29, describing the voice of, the, of God, is, is pretty amazing. So he is glorious in appearance. And he is worthy Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. And I saw in the right of him... <clears throat> excuse me. I might need some water. So if somebody wants to get me some, that would be great. I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor in earth, nor under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory. And blessing. Verse 13. And every creature. Which is in heaven. And on earth. And under the earth. And such as are in the sea. And all that are in them. Heard I saying. Blessing and honor. And glory and power. Be unto him that sitteth upon the throne. And unto the lamb. Forever and ever. Can you imagine the crescendo? That's a lot of beings. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. This is Jesus. He is exclusive. There is no other in all of creation. He laid aside his crown. He laid aside his glory. And he came to earth as a man. And as a man, he conquered death and sin. And because he alone has come through death, because he alone has conquered sin, he alone is worthy to take this book, whatever it is, and open it. And he alone is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So he is worthy. He is glorious and he is victorious. Revelation 11:15 and the seventh angel sounded and there was great and there were great voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And if you think back to the garden of Eden Back to when all was right and when Satan came and tempted Eve and tempted Adam. They they had been given stewardship of the world and they have surrendered their allegiance to Satan. They planted their flag in a different camp. And as a result, the world is under Satan's control. Jesus refers to Satan in John chapter 12 verse 31 as the prince of this world. And so the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness when Satan said, if you will bow and worship me, I will give you the kingdoms of the world. That was a temptation and it was real. It was a shortcut. But Jesus didn't bite. Revelation twelve ten and I, <clears throat> Revelation twelve verse ten. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, <clears throat> Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. And Jesus' victory is so sure, it is so complete, that his people have victory over the seductions of Satan through his victory. Satan cannot overcome those who are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 16. And I saw heaven opened, and beheld a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And jumping to verse 21, And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So not only has he conquered sin, and not only has he conquered death, he also defeats Satan and his earthly hordes just by the word of his mouth. And the armies of heaven, they're not there to fight. They're merely there to witness the awesome power of their Savior. And borrowings from Psalm 29, truly the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. Truly the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness and strips the forest bare. And as a result, all the armies of heaven cry glory. Glory. So he is victorious and he is judge. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. into the lake of fire. This same Jesus, who is glorious and victorious, who sustains us and saves us, and who is worthy of all praise. This Jesus, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. This Jesus, who is Son of God and Son of man. This Jesus is returning to claim those who are His and to judge Those who are not. This Jesus, who spoke the world into existence, speaks at length on the subject of hell. It is this Jesus who says things like this. Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire. Matthew 25, 41. And Matthew 23. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers... How can you escape the damnation of hell? There is no other Jesus. It's the same Jesus. So. Several questions. First one. Does it exist? The apostles record Jesus speaking about hell. Not as a fictional place. Not allegorically or in hyperbole, but as a place that is real. And he speaks about it in great detail. Why does it exist? Matthew 25, 41. Then shall he say unto them on the left hand, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. It was not originally created for man. It was originally prepared for the devil and his angels. Who goes there? If we are aligned with Satan and with his cause, which is rebellion against God, we align, we align ourselves also with his fate. Revelation 20.15, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. John 3.36, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John 5.29 And shall come forth, they that have done good, unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil, unto the resurrection of damnation. Revelation 21, 8. But the fearful and unbelieving, and the abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, shall have their part in the lake, which burneth with fire and brimstone which is the second death. What is hell like? Matthew 13, verses 49 and 50. So shall it be at the end of the world. The the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So it is a place of separation, a place of torment, and a place of fire. It is also a place of darkness. Both Peter and Jude refer to this. Jude 1.13 says, Raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And it is a place of punishment. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. This is Second Thess- Thessalonians 1, verses 7 to 10. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction, from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. And how long will it last? Mark chapter 9, verses 43 to 48 make this abundantly clear. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed And if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Hell is real, and it is forever. And this is very difficult for us to understand. We don't like it. We do not like the idea that my sin, whatever it is, warrants such a drastic punishment. And due to the difficulty of this subject and our small minds trying to wrap our, trying to mesh this concept of an eternal hell with the love of God, many Christians have rejected the idea of an eternal hell, or even a hell at all. And I came across this quote by a Christian author as I was studying, and to be fair to the author, I do not know the context of this this quote, but we're just going to take it at face value. And the quote is this, if God is to practice what he preaches, then it makes it hard to believe in eternal damnation. In the New Testament, Peter asks How many times he should forgive his brother. And Jesus tells him, I don't say seven times, but 70 times seven, which is a way of saying infinitely. If God commands that of us, then how does he get away with not being infinite in his forgiveness? And there's a lot of things I could say to that, but I will only say this. God does offer infinite forgiveness. And it's found at the foot of the cross. It's found where God's justice and his mercy collide. At the foot of the cross. There is infinite forgiveness. And there is this idea out there. That one day everyone will be redeemed. Or which is very similar, that the people in hell will totally cease to exist after a while. But this is not the reality of what God's word says, my friends. Revelation fourteen ten and 11. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. I can't comprehend that. That's what it says. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. Who worship the beast in his image and whoever receiveth the mark. Of his name. There is little motivation in a short term hell with eternal bliss or annihilation afterwards. Because in our humanity, in our fallenness, we like our sin. And we would opt out and say, I'll have my cake and eat it too. Because we, we think we can endure something for a short term. We, we are, I've never heard anybody complain about eternal salvation or eternal reward. So we're okay with the idea of eternal salvation, but we flinch at the idea of eternal damnation. So which is easier to comprehend? A punishment which we deserve or a salvation which we do not? Which is more unjust? Is it more unjust for God to condemn people to eternal damnation? Or is it more unjust for God to take the punishment upon himself And to offer eternal salvation. Which is more unjust. If there is injustice. It is hard for us to comprehend. An eternal hell. God is infinite. In time. He was. And he is. And he is to come. He is infinite in holiness. Holy. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Sin cannot be in the presence of God. So sin separates us from God forever and ever. And I would be remiss if I did not ask this next question, which is how can I escape? So sin does separate us from God forever and ever. But God is good. And God is merciful. And in his goodness and in his mercy, he sent Jesus to bear the punishment of our sin, thus solving the dilemma of eternal separation. And eternal God took our sin upon himself. Galatians chapter 1 verse 3. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. That he might deliver us from this present evil war- world according to the will of God and our Father. Romans 5, eight. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9. But we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels. For the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor. That he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. And 1 John chapter 2 verse 2. And he is the propitiation for our sins. Not just for ours. But also for the sins of the whole world. Now, for the conclusion of the matter. Rico Tice, an, an Anglican evangelist, tells this story, and it is a true story. I was able to verify at least the first part of it. The second part I did not verify, but I'm hoping it's true. It's a good illustration. December 1984, there was a huge crash in which 11 people were killed due to fog on the M25 motorway south of London. Early in the morning, a truck carrying paper crashed and all the warning lights came on. There were hazard signs. The police were there. But the issue was, driver after driver ignored the warning lights. They ignored the hazard signs and the fog and drove on and the policemen, realizing what was happening, became possessed with fear because they knew the destruction that was taking place. So they began to pick up traffic cones and throw them at the windshields to stop people, but they would not stop. They kept driving. One newspaper reported this. One of the policemen had tears running down his face as he threw cones at the drivers who would pay no attention do you believe hell is real so this reality of hell coupled with love for God and our fellow man should spur us to action we all have friends we all have neighbors and family and other acquaintances who are in danger of this very reality and we are Are we willing to throw traffic cones at their windshield? Or are we letting them drive by unhindered and unwarned? And I had to think of a boat full of people enjoying each other's company, having an an enjoyable time, while unwittingly, Headed towards destruction, whatever it was, a waterfall or whatever. And if someone's out there on the shore throwing them a lifeline, are they going to grab it? Not if they don't know they're headed for destruction, they're going to think he's nuts. They're not going to grab it. So, do our acquaintances know that they are in danger? Do they know that they are lost? I think it was Billy Graham who said it's easy to get someone saved. It's more difficult to get them lost. So they have to know they're lost before they know they need a savior. This past Wednesday, I mentioned this morning that evangelism is not one of my, I wouldn't say is one of my strengths. And this past Wednesday evening, Nate Kaufman has, he began a series on the spiritual gifts. And he shared a little bit, I think it's from Matthew 25, the parable of the, the servant who buried his talent or the parable of the talents and how this servant was condemned. And there are, I think there are three reasons in that passage that say why he was condemned. Two of those reasons were fear and laziness. It got me right in the gut (laughs) because I was studying for this sermon. (laughs) And that's how I tend to operate. I tend to operate out of fear because I don't know what to say and I might screw it up. And I tend to operate out of spiritual laziness. I have other things to do, right? And it moves to the bottom of the pile. So I'll do it tomorrow. always tomorrow. So my prayer is that out of love for our fellow man and a fear for his eternal destiny, we will, we will, like it says in Jude, save others with fear, pulling them out of the fire. And because we serve a living Savior, we can share with others the reality of hell, and the good news of salvation. And we will do so with compassion and with humility and with the recognition that we deserve this fate as well. Do you believe hell is real? Let's pray. Father, we come before you this evening... And we recognize that you are glorious, that you are victorious, and that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And Father, we recognize also that we sometimes avoid the things that we should do in preference of the things that we would do. Give us courage and strength. To reach out to those around us. To risk our pride. And even probably messing up sometimes. And help us to do these things with grace and humility. In Jesus' name, amen.